นโมทัสสะภะคะวะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสะเรียลโซเชียลสกิลิตี้ 
then we're interested in letting go of that habit of seeking identity in the sense of self. We go for refuge to the Buddha, which means going for refuge to just knowing selfless awareness. So the mode of operating of somebody who is convinced that the self is a source of security is, I would say, is likely to be reactive and the characteristic of somebody who is going for refuge to selfless awareness is more likely to be one that's responsive or responsible. And as to uh, skillful means that would support us in moving towards responding to life rather than reacting out of conditioned preferences and skillful means. Well, I was at anything, and we do need to be creative. It's not just what we find in the scriptures or the tradition, but anything that leads to a, a genuine sense of self-respect. That's one important thing. Second very important thing is that which leads to the cultivation of what I've been calling conscious composure, or indriya sangara. So we're not, again, just reacting according to what we like or don't like, accepting or rejecting. And the third thing I would say really warrants emphasising is the spirit of creative inquiry or wise reflection. These are the three, I would say, key principles that anybody who's going for refuge to the Buddha needs to have forefront pretty much all the time. Certainly without the sense of self-respect that comes from living a life of integrity or a life committed to sila, then we're very disadvantaged. Remember that occasion of the conversation between the Buddha's attendant, Vinamala Ananda, and the, and the Buddha, and, and Ananda asking, what is the point of sila? And the Buddha's reply was, freedom from remorse that a life without sila, a life that's compromising integrity, leads to a loss of self-respect and a loss of self-confidence and actually conduces to inner chaos. So to progress to any degree in any area, we need a sense of inner order, not the sense of inner order that comes as a result of possibly egotistically controlling everything, but a sense of order that accords with progressing on the path of Dhamma. And that sense of order is going to be born naturally out of sila. There's a Dhammapada verse, 157, which says, if we hold ourselves dearly, then we maintain careful self-regard both day and night. And the traditional story associated with the occasion when the Buddha gave this teaching is illustrated with the Buddha giving teachings to somebody who is suffering the consequences of having compromised sila in the past. 
killing living beings, eating living beings without remorse. And he was suffering the consequences. And the Buddha is saying, here's the cause and here's the effect. If we compromise sila, if we compromise integrity, then there will be disorder, there will be suffering, there will be chaos, inner chaos. And when there's a accumulation of lots of people suffering from inner chaos, well then there's also outer chaos. And I think there's fairly evidence that that's what's happening in our world today. And this relates to what the Buddha had to say about Hiriyanotapa. The Buddha referred to these as protectors of the world. Hiri is that uh, virtuous sense of shame that means we're not inclined to do that which is unwholesome. And otapa is a recoiling from unwholesomeness, like a fear of falling into unwholesomeness and a fear of the consequences of falling into unwholesomeness. Now, there of course, these principles, these virtues can be distorted and have been distorted and, and produced what most of us will be familiar with, I expect, the neurotic guilt obsessions that so many people suffer from, where there's a tendency to feel we're good by hating ourselves for having been bad. That, that doesn't accord with Dhamma. It's definitely not a, a virtuous sense of shame. However, when we do something that's unskillful, and if we don't feel ashamed, that means it's like, you know, if you, do, if you kick a rock with your foot and you cut your foot and you don't feel any pain, that's dangerous. That's very dangerous. You can get a serious infection and maybe end up losing your foot. And when we do something that's motivated by the intention to cause harm for ourselves or others, and we do something that's unwholesome, then it's appropriate that we feel ashamed. And it's appropriate that we feel remorse. That wholesome sense of shame the Buddha referred to as a protector of the world. And likewise with otapa, that recoiling from unwholesomeness, that fear of unwholesomeness. As a skillful means here in the monastery, anybody who's visited this monastery will see on the, the front door of the Dhamma Hall here, the, the two door handles. The one on the left is, is a, a bronze casting of, of the world. And then... The door handle on the right is two intertwined dragons, Hiri and Otapa. They're watching over the world. And when Hiri and Otapa are not watching over the world, they're not protecting the world, then the world disintegrates. And so, this, getting back to saying about Sila, maintaining careful self regard both day and night, that's protecting ourselves from falling into unwholesomeness, unwholesome actions of body, unwholesome actions of speech, unwholesome actions of mind. So holding these up and doing whatever we need to do to remind ourselves of these principles. And the second one I mentioned there of a conscious composure, which we've spoken about before, we really, really can't be too careful with this principle. Learning how to say no in the right way at the right time really makes a difference. It's like our body's immune system. If there's some foreign agent invading the body and, and the immune system doesn't kick in and say no, then we get sick and maybe we die. 
We need that, that response to something that's unhealthy and something that's threatening. Well, on the heart level, likewise, we need that response to that which threatens to invade us and, and overshadow our goodness and, and create chaos. And that is this indriya sangra or conscious composure. And it's, a, it's like developing a muscle. We may not at the beginning feel like we can do it. You, you know, a child can't lift anything that's very heavy, but if, if you, as you grow up and get stronger, then you find you can lift more weights. And so it is with developing this spiritual muscle of indriya sangra or conscious composure. Skillful means that help us do that. Well, again, we need to get creative. And I've spoken before about how we might exercise restraint with regards to answering the mobile phone. It rings, you want to reach out and pick it up. Or, well, no, I'm going to wait for it to ring three or four times. Or, or it beeps because there's a message and you want to reach out and pick it up. Is there a skillful way of inhibiting that reaction? Well, we can trust in the Buddha's teachings and have confidence that there is a way of doing it. We have this faculty, uh, Indriya Sangra, which needs to be exercised. And so we appreciate the benefit of it and the potential benefit of it and see how that it can protect us from just falling into heedless reactivity, support us in our going for refuge to selfless awareness and, and growing. And the third point I was mentioning there of a creative, the spirit of creative inquiry or wise reflection. Developing sila and developing indriya sangra are in service of this, that the, the mental inclination to get really interested. What's going on here? Now, we can read what the great teachers have said and, and reported about their experience and their perspective and that can inspire and encourage us but each of us has our own particular forms or patterns or configuration of distortions, of misperceptions and, and probably uh, more so than any other stage throughout all human history human beings are these days very self-referencing and we're disinclined to have confidence in what other people tell us to do. Either that or we just give somebody all of our authority and, and abdicate responsibility finding out for ourselves and simply believe in somebody else, and, which would not be encouraged. So having a creative sense of inquiry, what's really going on here? What is the real issue? Why do I keep getting tripped up by this pattern over and over again. I'm not the worst person on the planet. I do try to keep precepts. I do try to exercise restraint. I do try to cultivate generosity. And yet this pattern keeps manifesting. And then I open my mouth and that comes out. Or I, I do that. Or I think this. And getting interested in that not just relying on meditation techniques or the insights of our teachers. Yes, we use those, absolutely, to inspire us and, and introduce us to 
the possibilities of this path of practice. However, we also need to be creatively involved in inquiring. We need to feel that there are consequences to whether I figure this out or not. Our life is finite. And one of the strangest things about humanity is that every human being that's ever been born has died, and yet nearly all of us get around as if we're not going to die. And then when death approaches or death happens, we're shocked. How could that happen? It's the strangest thing. An absolute classic example of, of denial, refusing to accept the inevitable. What's going on there? Why are we doing that? Why is something that's perfectly natural like dying at the end of our life, why is it so absolutely unbearably terrible? Why do we make it into such a terrible thing? And that's a really important question. And so how do we inquire into that? Well, we get interested. This is going to happen to me. I'm going to die one day. And how am I going to handle it? Will I be ready for it? Do I have fear about it? Am I struggling to get techniques and strategies that protect me against it? So the spirit of creative inquiry needs to be alive within us and finding skillful means, finding our own skillful means for developing that. Also talking about skillful means that conduce to strengthening our commitment to this going for refuge to the Buddha, going for refuge to selfless awareness, it's useful, I would suggest, to bring to mind what the Buddha taught about right effort. You're probably all aware the Buddha taught the he talked about the, the four right efforts. The two right efforts that pertain to wholesomeness and two right efforts that pertain to unwholesomeness. So there's the the effort to give rise to so far unarisen wholesome states of being and then the effort to protect already arisen wholesome states of being. And then there's the effort to remove already arisen unwholesome states of being and the effort to avoid the so far unarisen unwholesome states of being. The Buddha identified these four right efforts so it's it's appropriate for us to dwell on them and how does this apply in terms of practice and can it help us in developing in a way whereby we're being freed from our painful addictions to reacting according to conditioning. So the first one of the effort to give rise to so far unarisen wholesome states of being. Well, then one thing we need to think about here is this very important tool in our spiritual toolkit called mudita, or empathetic joy. Not something that's uh, in excess in our culture. Uh, however, the Buddha held it up as is profoundly important and and if you ever have the good fortune to live in a traditional Buddhist country you become familiar with 
this culture of taking delight in the well-being of others. That's what mudita is, is celebrating the well-being of others. The, perhaps you could say it's the opposite of jealousy, the opposite of cynicism. Instead of assuming that everybody's got some sort of selfish motivation, there's a participation by way of celebration. This is the, the spirit of when we express anumodana, at uh, the time of the meal when people come and make meal offerings or other offerings of support in the monastery and then the monks recite what they call the Anamodana. It's not saying thank you. Not at all. Nothing like saying thank you. It's saying I honour this effort you're making to cultivate wholesomeness, which is the, what the donor is engaged with. Uh, they are aware that uh, everybody needs to build up their storehouse of goodness, this accumulation of wholesomeness, of goodness, is like nutriment for the heart, and we all need it. And so cultivating generosity is one of the first of these practices we can do to cultivate goodness. And so when you witness somebody cultivating goodness, to celebrate that, to take delight in that. And that's why we encourage people to come along when we have an ordination ceremony to participate by way of delighting in this act of going forth to become an anagaric, become a samanera, to take on the bhikkhu training. This bringing into heart and mind the sense of joy and delight when you see somebody doing something that's wholesome, it has an effect on us. It shapes us if we take delight in it. And Sometimes I like looking on the website where that, you see people who look like they're dogs and <laughs> there's uh, in fact I looked recently and I, I noticed there's another heading where people look like they're cars and uh, maybe that was a bit of a far reach but certainly there do seem to be people who love their dogs so much so they end up looking like them and this admiration of something affects us, that which we admire so mudita or the conscious intentional admiration of goodness in another. This is one of the ways in which we can make an effort to give rise to so far unarisen wholesome states of mind. Seeing somebody who's selfless, to delight in that. Seeing somebody who's generous, to delight in that. Or reading biographies, like reading Ajahn Chah's biography, which I confess I haven't done, but I imagine I'm familiar with a lot of the stories that are in there. But reading this life of this human being who lived here on planet earth and what he did, what he went through, what he realized. That's, that's actually amazing what this person did right through until he died, this, this effort that he made, this being that he manifest, the gifts that he gave, and the Buddha to read the, the teachings of the Buddha with an intention to take delight to celebrate as a form of participation, and intentional participation by celebrating goodness, Medita. I'm very grateful for having been given a book when I, I think I was about 14. Okay, I was given this book about Albert Schweitzer, that some of you may have heard of him, French-German man, lived last century and he 
phenomenal character. He started off with a, a doctorate in philosophy and then a doctorate in theology and and then eventually he got a became a doctor of medicine. He maybe also had a doctorate in music, I don't know, but he was he was a, a world famous organ player and wrote books on Bach and and what did he do with his life? He spent something like 50 years working in the deep jungles of Africa in a very run-down primitive hospital helping sick people. That was his commitment. At a very early stage in life he discovered what he later referred to as reverence for life. He was a vegetarian and even though he was out there in Africa and dealing with people who were very sick he didn't even want to kill a mosquito or an insect. He had what he referred to this reverence for life and this extraordinary selfless generosity. Now, I gave a, I actually, I, when I was given this book, I was uh, involved in giving a speech in the Rotary Speech Competition at our high school. And I didn't win the competition, but I think I maybe got into the semi-finals, maybe the finals. But having an opportunity to read about somebody so virtuous. Now, I'm not saying that everything Albert Schweitzer did was virtuous and perfect, but there was so much about his life that was virtuous and was impressive. And to admire that, and at that age, at that stage of my life, I'm, I'm really grateful I was given that book. I'm really grateful I had the opportunity to give that speech and to have that in my mind. And If we don't get educated in the, the virtue of mudita, this empathetic joy, then perhaps we don't even realize this is an option. This is, this, this is a, a force that we can use to give shape to our lives. We can maybe just end up being jealous and you see somebody doing well and maybe that's the model that we had early on in life. We saw other people around us just being jealous and cynical and so we end up just being jealous and cynical when that's not an obligation. We could do something about that. I recently had a conversation with one of our senior monks who was reflecting on his time in Thailand uh, and living in the Western, the community of Western monks there. And there'd been a conversation about how Thai monks when they saw somebody developing well or progressing well, there was this collective joyous anamodana or appreciation of it. And yet amongst the Westerners, there was a characteristic opposite of like almost cynicism and, and even, even, even criticism sometimes. And so recognizing that for what it is, how unfortunate how unnecessary that mind state can be and then generating the counterforce you know, like the potential to celebrate somebody's goodness and to enjoy it and so recognizing how we are not victims to our conditioning that if we're interested in giving rise to wholesome states of being then there's something that we can do about it. The view that so many of us have 
the, again, part of our society we call egalitarianism, like we're all equal. Is that really true? Does that accord with reality? I know it's something that Ajahn Chah commented on after he visited um, Britain and, and America. He went back and he said, they've got a lot going for them over there. They've got interest in Dhamma, they've got suffering, they've got intelligence. He said, though, unfortunately, they all think of themselves as equal. And he was commenting on the way school children referred to the teachers by their first name. They didn't use an honorific. They didn't show respect. And he said, if you want to benefit from something, you show it respect. That's just nature. That's just how it works. And if you think you're all equal, then it gets in the way. So there's something that we can do about it. And also bringing into being qualities, wholesome qualities that we might admire and looking at the way we hold the sense of awareness itself what, what is awareness how does awareness function last week I was talking about the multidimensionality and gave the image of, of the, the rainbow and her red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet the visible light and the invisible light, the invisible light of infrared and ultraviolet. We can't see them, but thankfully science has studied these things and taught us about it, and so we avoid too much ultraviolet in particular. It's very dangerous. It give you cancer and infrared also. Too much infrared can cause problems. And so we can't see they're there, but we can factor them in and we can understand and we can relate accordingly and well likewise with awareness I was suggesting last week if we hold to the model of awareness as a, a multi-dimensional phenomenon then we can tolerate all sorts of otherwise apparently conflicting states like last week we were talking about how you could have a sense of ease and contentment at the same time as feeling saddened and despairing about the world. They don't have to be in conflict. If we hold to the sense of awareness being a singular thing, then when there's a mood arises like despair, then it can take us over. If we can adjust our thinking to consider that when we get taken over by otherwise unacknowledged stuff, where did it come from? It came from unawareness. It came from unconsciousness. It was there all along. That stuff was there. We just didn't know about it. So there's good stuff, wholesome stuff, helpful stuff, unhelpful stuff, unwholesome stuff contained within awareness. And, and if we get interested in it and agile in being able to move between these different dimensions of awareness, it can conduce to a sense of tolerance, tolerance of diversity. If we only have the view that this is me, whatever this mood I'm in at the moment is me, this is the all of me, this feeling of sadness or this feeling of elation or relief or delight or disappointment, whatever feeling's happening right now, if this is the all of me, then that can translate into a very intolerant attitude towards others. 
Conversely, if we can appreciate that there's all these different forms of me, there's not just one me, there's a potentially a calm, generally okay me, there's a vaguely together me, there's a disintegrated me, there's a, an energetic, enthusiastic, diligent me, there's a lazy, overly laid-back me. And we're committed to just knowing these different versions of me arising and ceasing and not attaching to any one of them, if we have some appreciation of Buddha's teaching on anatta, as that generates a sense of tolerance towards ourself, that can transfer also to a sense of tolerance towards others and towards the world. We can allow people to be different. People are very different. However, if we're attached to this very limited perspective of the reality of awareness, then it can cause a high degree of intolerance. So if we look at tolerance of diversity as a wholesome state of mind that we'd like to see developed, then I would suggest using the skillful means of picking up this model of awareness as multidimensional, looking at the idea that it's possible to have apparently conflicting states happening at just the same time. Just as we can be getting around performing our tasks and then be taken over by some previously unconscious motivation. Where did that come from? It was there all along, we just didn't appreciate it. So the effort to give rise to so far unarisen wholesome states of mind and then the effort to protect or maintain already arisen wholesome states of being. Well similar to Mudita but in this case consciously appreciating goodness that we've experienced within ourselves so it's not so much looking towards others and admiring those qualities so that they might grow within us. However, appreciating the goodness of our own lives, the good fortune that we have, or any virtue that might be accumulated, or if there's a practice, if, we, if we've developed our spiritual practice to a degree where um, we have some access to a relative degree of mental clarity and valuing that. Or if we've made an effort to tidy up our precepts and valuing that. When we consciously value something, then it's sustained. We look after it. There's a thing that sometimes happens here in the monastery whereby, unfortunately, because so much of the equipment we have here is under shared ownership, most of us don't own our own tools in the workshop don't own our own spades and hoes and shovels and axes they all belong to the community and there's, there's an unfortunate thing that sometimes happens that because they're not owned individually that they're not looked after and so the, the spades and hoes get put away covered in dirt and, and maybe the tools get left lying outside in the rain and that's really unfortunate so from time to time we have to address this and get all the tools out of the garden shed and make sure they're all been cleaned off and oiled and the tools out of the workshop and make sure they've all been cleaned off and oiled and so as they will last and 
if they were under personal ownership, if we had to work to earn money to buy these things, maybe we would take better care of them. Well, if we have conscious valuing of something, thinking about the qualities in our own life, we've got ourselves to a place in life where there's a we've got a good exercise routine going, we've got good spiritual companions, let's make an effort to maintain that, to value that, to stay in touch with our companions in the spiritual life and to let them know that we appreciate them. Again, referencing the monastery as an example here, over the years we've been here, 30 or 40 years, whatever it is we've been in Britain, not rarely people suggest, why don't you just change that way of doing things? Mm. You could wear saffron tracksuits or something. It's more practical. Or, or stop shaving your eyebrows. And It's not in the Vinaya that you have to shave your eyebrows. However, we really value our relationship with the tradition in Thailand. We value the teachers that we've lived with there. We value the opportunity to go back there and spend time with them. And we want them to come here and spend time with us. And the monks and nuns that train here, because we value that relationship, we honor that relationship, they can go to Thailand and, and they are respected and are welcomed into the tradition and benefit from that relationship. But if we don't show the tradition respect, then that relationship is obstructed. And the Buddha's teaching on the discourse on great blessings, there's a, a line that says, Puja ja puja honor that which is worthy of honor. So valuing that which is worthy of value to, to take this on board and, and to pay attention, to make much of it, not just to take things for granted. This is, again, why it's so important to keep our life relatively simple because if we get too busy, too active, then we lose perspective. And so that is another skillful means that we can cultivate to maintain wholesomeness that's already arisen. Let's not get too, too busy. Sometimes I get auto email replies. I send an email to somebody and then an email comes back and said, please note that I only reply to emails once a week or twice a week or something like that. So that's good. This is somebody who really knows how to look after themselves, how to hold themselves dear, how to maintain careful self-regard. And if we don't do that, well then there's a chance that we'll lose the benefit we've gained. So not getting too busy and also regular practice. Regular practice is it's like regular spiritual practices like with regular physical exercise. Often I know myself, I just, oh, I can't be bothered, I don't want to do it or I'm going to give myself a treat today and not do my exercises. And However, when I do do the exercises, I feel really good about it, generally. Unless I get too overactive and then hurt myself. There's bound to be resistance. That's the forces of ignorance are powerful. And the forces of inertia, the forces of resistance are powerful. And so we're not always well motivated. We're not always inclined to make effort. However, we recognize, oh, this is just a trick. This is just a game. Yeah. 
and the, the Buddha's recommendation to register this, making an effort to maintain wholesomeness that all area has arisen. And then the third right effort, which is the effort to remove already arisen unwholesome states of being. The effort to remove already arisen unwholesome states of being. Recently I was speaking about the power of accumulated goodness to outshine that which is unwholesome, the tendencies towards selfishness, the tendencies towards heedlessness, the tendencies towards greed, the tendencies towards hatred. The unwholesome mind states that have already arisen, how do we meet them, how do we receive them? Well, it's important that we know we have this possibility of outshining them with goodness. There's a Dhammapada verse, or a couple of verses, 58 and 59, which says that just as a sweet-smelling and beautiful lotus can grow out of a pile of discarded waste, the radiance of a true disciple of the Buddha outshines the dark shadows cast by ignorance. The radiance of a true disciple of the Buddha outshine the dark shadows cast by ignorance. So understanding that we have this possibility and again valuing it to cultivate goodness, to be familiar with the virtues, the ten paramis, the ten forces of transformation that we, we are encouraged to contemplate. There's that set of cards that Ajahn Suchito put out some time ago, the ten parami, and, and it's good to use those, maybe use a, a fridge magnet to stick one up on the door of the fridge, you know, one virtue a week. And so this week I'm going to contemplate dana or generosity, just to see it regularly, to think about it, to read his commentary on it, or to read his book on the ten parami to study the ten parami, to study these forces of goodness. Remembering that there's got to be a certain momentum, a, a certain concentration before precipitation or insight is going to take place. And, and the, the concentration or the, the intensity is of the force of goodness. The Buddha spent lifetimes accumulating, perfecting these parami, these forces of goodness. And so understanding the opportunity that we have always is an opportunity to develop goodness and it's not like it has to be a big moment we could think that we need to have big opportunities or significant opportunities for developing generosity or, or significant opportunities for developing honesty however maybe it's the accumulation of small moments the accumulation of small moments also matters And then there's the Buddha's teachings you find through the, the scriptures or through the, the uh, reported experiences of the great teachers uh, the various techniques and um, encouragements that we can use to meet obstructions and difficulties that 
are bound to come up in practice. There's that Buddha's teachings on the five ways of removing distracting thoughts. And the model that I find most helpful in this regard is to think of them and basically as, as three levels of intensity. The distractions that come to us, whether it's in formal practice or whether it's in daily life activity. Three modalities. The most lightweight one, the one that's least intense, maybe all that's required is that we just basically don't give it any energy. Don't look at it. I call that cutting through. Just cutting through the obstruction, just refuse to pay attention. No, I'm not talking to you. It's like if you're having at a meeting and there's a crowd of people around, you're having a conversation with somebody and somebody else comes along and tries to get your attention, you just say, no, not now, and go back to your conversation. And the other person, the troubling person, goes away. So in meditation, it can just be holding on to the meditation object. I'm not going to look at this. I'm not going to register this. Now, I've looked at it before. I'm not going to go there and resolutely cut through it. In daily life, sometimes it might actually mean physically, literally, saying no to something, saying no to somebody. It's worth practicing, it's worth developing that ability. I like to say no to television people who want to come and film at the monastery. I deeply distrust the industry generally and even though they might send out nice people to encourage us to agree to an interview and the interviewer might also be nice that when it comes down to it, the production is usually based on money and that's not the basis of our lives. And so I'm very strongly inclined to say no. However, they can be very persuasive and very charming. And So even though it's difficult sometimes to say no, it can be useful to know that we can say no. In fact, I encourage people to make a practice of it, to practice saying no to something like, no to my telephone today, I'm not going to turn my phone on, maybe. Just as a suggestion, I'm not saying you have to do that, but just as a suggestion. Being able to exercise in that way and so that we're not just pulled into habits, into reactivity, not lost in the conditions that take up so much of the energy of our lives I and mean, easily get lost in it. And, and if we understand that we have this possibility, find a way of exercising it, kindly of course, I'm not talking about being mean or nasty, and, but so as to cut through the habits so we're not distracted by them. Or the second level of intensity is referred to as seeing through. Sometimes, in, like in formal meditation, just refusing to give it any attention is not going to work. Like It's like at that gathering and the person just keeps coming back and asking for our attention. So sometimes the only thing you can do is turn around and give them your attention. So, okay, what is it you want? So it is sometimes in meditation we need to let go of what we wanted to do in our practice and turn around and look at what is this feeling, what is this mind state that's disturbing us. Or likewise in, in daily life practice, 
sometimes you kind of turn away from what we wanted to be doing and look at what's happening. What is this feeling that's brewing away in my stomach? This anxiety, this irritation, this aversion. Ignoring it's not working. It's still there. It's something that's asking for attention. And maybe studying it, being there for it, receiving it, is what's called for. And then the energy is integrated and it disappears. Job done. But maybe it isn't. and that's, So that's the third level of intensity, which is burning through. Which, as we would all know, the encouragement the Buddha gave for patient endurance, you know, paramangtapo titika, the ultimate form of purification is patient endurance. Tapas is a, actually the root of the word tapas is fire because you know, we put ourselves in that situation where we're not getting what we want, we're getting what we don't want. We feel really annoyed with something and really frustrated with something and we can't do anything about it. We can't understand it and get over it. We can't ignore it and get over it. We can't generate loving kindness and get over it. We can't go and gossip to somebody else and get over it. It's still there. What do we do with it? We accept it. Patient endurance. Patient endurance. Yes, it can be burning. Yes, it can be bone-breaking. Not literally, of course, but metaphorically. It can feel like it takes all of our attention. Sometimes that's what's called for. So in terms of making the kind of effort that that uh, removes already arisen unwholesome states of being, sometimes focusing on these three approaches can help. And then the last of the four right efforts, effort to avoid the so far unarisen unwholesome states of mind. And once again, I encourage us to reflect on the, the power of Indriya Sangra, not underestimate this ability to say no. If we don't have it, then we're extremely vulnerable. It's like having a depleted immune system at a time of a pandemic. Extremely vulnerable. Or the winter comes along, what do we do? We take vitamin C or, or we eat more, drink more lemon juice so as to bolster our immune system so we're not so vulnerable. Well, likewise, we need to bolster our spiritual immune system with the cultivation of Indriya Sangra, or conscious composure. There's so many influences that impact on us, and we have no control over them. I mean, influences when we're still very young and we're children, and the culture that we're in, all sorts of prejudices and distorted beliefs and biases that get conditioned into us, and, and nobody, is te- nobody tells us that they're unhelp- unwholesome or unhelpful. And there we can be like 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years later, and we're still carrying around these prejudices. And Well, if we have this ability to restrain that is Indriya Sangra, then we can say no to these impulses, no to these biases, no to these prejudices, and protect our own hearts, protect our own minds, and protect the world. The benefit we accrue, we can also have an influence on the world. 
I think it was Lumpur Tiradamo who, when he was the abbot here at the Hana Monastery, and he used to visit Northern Ireland quite regularly and, and give teachings there. And if I remember correctly, he was telling me how on one of his visits there he was walking around and and he got called up by this group of characters and challenged them and say, so, so what religion are you? Are you Protestant or Catholic? And he said, oh, well, I'm a Buddhist. And I said, I don't care. I want to know, are you a Protestant or a Catholic Buddhist? Now, that's thoroughly irrational. And yet such prejudices exist right across the board. So protecting ourselves from being infected with social prejudices, mental bias, and then on more subtle levels, the compulsive activity of our hearts and minds, uh, appreciating the potential that lies within Indriya Sangwara, or conscious composure. And the last thing I'd mention is that really powerful and significant tool in our spiritual toolkit, which is compassion. We're talking about protecting ourselves from the arising of as yet unarisen, unwholesome states of being. And one way to do that is to intentionally register how painful other people's lives are to feel the pain of somebody's life. Like, for instance, if somebody of a cynical disposition, you meet somebody of a cynical disposition, it can be, it can be like meeting somebody with a bad case of halitosis. And, Whoa, that's really, that's really awful. Foul smell coming off somebody, and you hear the way that they speak. There's there's no such thing as altruism. Everybody's got some ulterior motivation, and cynicism is a very sad, very sad predicament. So, if we meet somebody like that, maybe they initial impulse could be we judge them for being that way. Certainly it's repulsive when you see it, hear it, witness it. It's very off-putting. But can we feel repulsed without hating them for it? Can we feel repulsed without judging them for it? Can we feel the pain that they must have stored up inside themselves? That's one way of understanding cynicism. It's like somebody's living in such a small world and it's full of pain. There's so much pain in there that they can't contain it and so they spew it out. And even when they're witnessing beauty, they don't see the beauty. It's all filtered through pain that they've got unreceived inside themselves. So if we can witness to somebody's pain and feel the pain with them and don't judge them for what they're giving off, One, maybe it'll help them because probably everybody else is judging them for being so unpleasant. But maybe also it'll help us not judge our own pain. Even if we don't have cynicism, we have other sorts of pain. And learning how to 
feel pain with other beings helps us learn how to feel our own pain without judgment. So the effort to avoid the arising of so far unarisen, unwholesome states of mind can be helped if we consciously go against our aversion for suffering. Of course, we can't say we're going to like suffering, but we can welcome it. It's just like if, we, if you wanted to Im- improve your game of tennis, you don't get somebody who's no good at playing tennis. Or if you want to improve your game of chess, you don't get somebody who doesn't know how to play chess. You get somebody who's better than you. So likewise, yeah. when we meet the suffering of the world, instead of indulging in our aversion for it and turning away from it, Remember what the Buddha taught, you know, mindfulness of suffering leads to the freedom from suffering. There's two reasons you stay stuck in this unfortunate circumstance, not knowing suffering, not knowing the cause of suffering. That's the Buddha's encouragement. So that when we witness other beings who are suffering, whether it's their painful, cynical disposition, or whether it's their anxiety, or, or whether it's just downright chaos can we witness to that feel it in the body, in our hearts in our minds, no judgement if we can do that well then maybe there's a better chance that the pain that we experience within ourselves will also be better received so I don't know if these hints and suggestions address the question that was off this evening but thank you very much for your attention